hello again, Grace Point. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our new series, which we've called Let Us Be. And it's a series about embodying the values we share as a community. And we're going to start looking at these values individually. We're going to begin with sort of the, maybe the main value, the thing that, that uh, everything else proceeds from, and that is love. And, and here's how we frame it at Grace Point. We talk about that life is a gift to be enjoyed and that love is a responsibility to be shared. If you want to put it a little more succinctly, make it a little more portable, we believe life is a gift and love is the point. But what does that mean? What does it mean to talk about love? Because we talk about love a lot, like all the time. And we even do it and, and talk about it in really strange ways. For example, I might talk about my kids and say, oh, I love my kids. And then like the next breath, be in a conversation about food and say, oh, I love tacos. Does the word mean the same thing in both of those sentences? Is, does it mean that my kids are on par with tacos or tacos are on par with my kids and they're both vying for my love and affection and attention? Uh, you know, another facet of the conversation about love um, is what does it mean in our current context, right? If we just sort of take it out of the ether as an, what does love mean in our current context? I actually thought about the, the phrase that was in my head for this part of the sermon was like, what does love mean in the era of Trump? What does love mean in the era of COVID? What does love mean in a time, and I'm sure for some of us there's a resonance here, we, we, what does it mean in a time that is so fractured and divided, at a time where conflict abounds and that we're all experiencing emotional trauma and our nation is going through trauma as, as, as a, a country, and we're living in the middle of a worsening global pandemic. What does love look like in this particular moment? What does love look like in an election year? What does it mean in this context? So that's what I want to lean into. The conversation I want to have today is, uh, what do we mean by love? And then what does love embodied look like in our particular context, and really any context? What does it look like to embody love? I think we first have to acknowledge that we have sentimentalized love in such a major way that, that the word in some ways has lost its significance. Right, because we, we tend to see love as, as something, nothing more than like a warm fuzzy or this sense of affection or even, even romance. And don't get me wrong, I love a good rom-com probably way more than I would ever want to admit publicly. But love's power, it definitely includes affection and it includes romance and it includes warm fuzzies. But love's power is, is much larger than just the, those particular meanings. And another problem is the word love can be used and has been used to try to get people to avoid or deflect from dealing with conflicts. When the party line is, well, we've just got to love them anyway, we can end up papering over issues that actually are going to compound and deepen the problem. I, I believe that loving our enemies is always the right choice. But what does that mean? I mean, it, it sounds good. It, it is good. But until we talk about what love is, what love means, then when saying we should love our enemies, saying I love my kids, saying I love tacos, saying like it all, it just sort of it leaves us in a bit of confusion. Listen to the way some of the writers of the Bible describe love. We looked at this text last week, but it's Paul's well-known fruit of the spirit list. And I find it really interesting that when Paul composes this list, he uses the word fruit. And often we'll put an S on it and make the assumption that it's plural. Um, but actually, 
in the original Greek of the New Testament, Paul doesn't use a plural. He uses a singular. And here's what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's not describing multiple fruits. He's describing the fruit. And it begins with love. And it's almost like love is sort of the thing through which everything else comes into being. In Romans 13, Paul goes on to say that every single commandment is summed up in the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then he adds this in Romans 13. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Which sets into sort of an interesting context. A lot of the things we've been seeing um, with people who are refusing to to practice social distancing, physical distancing, with people who want to get together and pack in real tightly and have a, a, a worship protest, whatever that means, or, or have a, a, a campaign rally. And it, it actually, we can say that that's not loving because love does no harm. And, and so think about, gosh, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to be a loving person? What does it mean to embody love in the world? Part of it means is we're not going to do harm to the people around us. Um, notice the way Colossians and Ephesians have some similar texts. In Colossians 3, the writer says, Therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other, and if someone has a complaint against you, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, forgive each other. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And perfect there actually doesn't mean flawless. It's, the, it's a word that means completeness. But love is what brings completeness to the bond of unity. In Ephesians 4, the writer says, put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting and slander, along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. I love that, imitate God as dearly loved children. This is exactly what kids do, right? Kids want to, put on their parents' shoes. They want to put on their parents' shirt. They, they want to do things that are very much, actually our oldest went through a phase when he was younger, when he was really small, where he wanted to dress like me. And so like on Sunday morning when we went to church, every week he and I had to have some sort of, you know, some sort of the same look, some sort of matching. And he doesn't want to do that anymore, but he did at one point because that's what kids do. They, they want to imitate. And the writer says, imitate God because God has embodied love in the world. Love for these early Christian writers isn't just a theory or a concept that's sort of lost in the ether of sentimentality. For them, love wasn't even a doctrine. Love was something much more practical that um, could be embodied in the world. Love is sort of the impetus. It's the, it's the energy behind transformation. It's the bond that holds us together. It sums up everything we are called to do and be in the world. If the question is, what's love? What's love got to do with, got to do, got to do with it? Is that how it goes? If the question is, what does love have to do with anything? I think the answer seems to be everything. Love has everything to do with everything. So practically, if this is what we're talking about with love, not just some sort of sentimentality or some sort of fuzzy feeling, but if we're talking about love as something that is embodied in the world and transforms everything, 
How do we embody that reality in this context? And I want to begin by talking about love, empathy, and compassion. I think in so many ways, empathy and compassion are grounded in this understanding of love. I think one of the best ways we embody love to those around us is by showing empathy and seeking to be compassionate. I totally get it. Some people make empathizing with them so difficult, right? Like they, they make it impossible at times. And it's actually not fair or healthy to say to someone who has been victimized or harmed by somebody else that, well, you really should feel sorry for your abuser. That's, that's totally toxic. Maybe part of the difficulty is that we assume empathy means somehow either ignoring or feeling sorry for or excusing the behavior of, of somebody else. And I want to come back to that in a minute. What would happen, though, if we saw empathy at this level, at just trying to see the humanity of another person? Or maybe even just making sure that we are acknowledging the humanity of another person. Because one of the dangers, maybe the greatest danger we face, is that we end up dehumanizing the dehumanizers. And when we end up dehumanizing the dehumanizers, we ourselves become dehumanizers and we keep dehumanization in circulation. And, and part of our mission in the world is to take dehumanization out of circulation. So maybe, maybe when we talk about empathy, it's not feeling sorry for them. It's, it's looking and seeing that they are a human being and it, there may be all sorts of issues and struggles and, and you may 100% have to put boundaries in place for certain people. Love doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. Actually, in, in my own experience, sometimes the only way love is possible is when we have boundaries that are really clear and really defined. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think the church has preached, love God and love your neighbor. And that's so important. Love your neighbor is vital. But we've lost those last couple of words. Love your neighbor as ourself, as yourself. That means that we actually can't truly love a neighbor deeply and authentically unless we love ourselves first. Love, compassion, and empathy begin at home within ourselves. The best way I can embody love, the best way I can practice empathy is sometimes with some people is to make certain that I have a space that has a well, clear, maintained boundary because it keeps me healthy. There are some people um, that for me to acknowledge their humanity, sometimes we need space and distance, right? That, that's just true. If somebody's wounded you, they've hurt you, they're toxic in your life. The, the call is not, they'll be as close to them as possible. The call is not, well, you got to feel sorry for them anyway. The call may be that from a distance, you acknowledge that they're a human being and that somebody needs to come alongside them and show some empathy and compassion perhaps, but that person doesn't necessarily you. So I, I do think there's this reality that love plus love, when it sort of shakes out as empathy, as, as seeing the humanity of someone else and as compassion, is acting compassionately when we feel compelled to, when we feel we have the opportunity to, and it's safe for us, and it's not going to put us in, in harm's way. Then the second thing I want to say about love, uh, I, I don't think we can have a conversation about love unless we have a conversation about justice. For, for love to actually be love in the way that, that our tradition talks about it, it cannot just be a warm, fuzzy sentiment. It actually has to take justice seriously. The philosopher Cornel West said, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Isn't that great? I love that line. Justice 
is what love looks like in public. In Jesus' own understanding of God, it, he, he was grounded in a call to justice. Listen to this text from Matthew 6, 33. It's kind of a well-known text, but it's often based on the way it's been translated. We, we miss part of some of the, the impetus that Jesus is, or some of the focus Jesus is putting on this. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So it's in the context of don't worry about what you'll eat, don't worry about what you'll drink, don't worry about what you'll wear. Instead, focus first and foremost on pursuing God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and everything will be given to you as well. That, that word righteousness has a certain connotation. It carries kind of an air of sanctimony, doesn't it? Like we often use it in the context of the word self, like self-righteous, right? Somebody who's insufferable, who thinks they're so holy and pure and good, and everybody else is somehow beneath them, right? So, so that, that word has some baggage. But here's what's interesting. In the original language in the New Testament, the word that gets translated here, righteousness, is the word dikaiosune. And essentially, it's a word that means justice. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom, which we could say maybe seek, seek to order the world in the way of the divine, which is a way of justice. Seek God's justice. I don't know about you. I did not grow up in church um, being taught to seek God's justice. I was taught to seek God's righteousness, to seek God's morality. And since I was beneath that morality, God had to go and kill his son to somehow prove to me that, or somehow accept me and love me. Um, that's not what's going on here. What this text is, what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't situate like, well, justice is a human concern, but God's more concerned with heavenly things. Actually, what God is concerned with is how the world is ordered. God is concerned about justice and love embodied will always look like people working for a more just and equitable world. And, and that means that love has a prophetic dimension. And I don't know what that word does to you when you hear the word prophetic, but the prophets in the, in the Bible, prophets weren't fortune tellers. That's, that's actually not true. They, they actually, what prophets would do is they would look at the world. They would look at what was going on. They would sort of take into account the, the justice of God. And then they would describe the world. And they would say, if you keep living in this way, if you keep living um, in this unjust, unjust way, things aren't going to go very well. And I wanted, so they were voices that called the powerful, the wealthy, the people sort of on top of the pyramid of power. The prophets were voices that called them to do justice, to share, and to practice faithfulness to God by practicing generosity to their neighbors. And the two couldn't be separated. You couldn't practice faithfulness to God and not care about the suffering of human beings around you, right? It, it, it was just in their mind, in their understanding of God, it was impossible to think you were being faithful to God. And, and right, we talked about being is greater and, and more vital than believing last week. When believing is most important, you can believe all the right things and have all the right doctrines in place, and you can feel like you're being faithful to God. But when you aren't being, when you aren't like putting hands and feet into the world, doing good, caring about those who are suffering, like you're actually not being faithful to God. Faithfulness to God isn't just believing a bunch of things. Faithfulness to God is joining God in the work of restoring and repairing the world. Now, the prophets... Um, they were not soft and cuddly. <laughs> they, they probably came off a bit cranky at times. 
They definitely were not appreciated by those in power. Kings and queens typically did not enjoy the work of the prophets because they were the focus of the prophetic critique. So uh, listen to some words from the prophet Amos, Amos chapter 5. Um, and again, I said they're a little, a little cranky and not soft and cuddly. Here's how it begins. Doom. Some translations say, whoa, W-O-E, not, not like W-O-A-H. But whoa, doom to those who desire the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord essentially was this day when God would set the world right. And Amos is doom to those who would desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or sought refuge in a house, rested a hand against the wall, and was bitten by a snake. Isn't the day of the Lord darkness, not light? All darkness with no brightness in it? Now, you have to understand what Amos is saying. Amos is about to address, address an injustice. And what Amos is saying is that for those of you who are in power, you say you want the day of the Lord. But if God were to roll up God's sleeves and dive in, you would be in trouble. Because the very people you're oppressing are crying out to God. And God hears the cry of the oppressed and God wills their liberation, and God will always be on their side, and God is only going to be on your side when you're on the side of the oppressed, right? And so Amos is, he's not saying this is a blanket, like, oh, this is just going to be bad for everyone. No, he's saying those of you who have ordered the world to your benefit, when this transformation of the world comes, it is going to feel like hell for you, because you have ordered your existence in such a way that you have walled yourself in and everybody is on the outside and you have taken care of yourself at the expense of your community. And this is going to be a rough day for you. And then Amos goes on speaking as if for God, I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies, right? Um, <laughs> there's so many uh, ties back to what's happened in the last couple of weeks. Uh, if you bring your entirely burned offering and food, gifts of food, I won't be pleased. Don't bring me sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. I mean, Amos is, he's cranked up and he's speaking for the divine and, and essentially through Amos, the, the prophet believes God is saying, look, when you all get together and you sing your songs, it is like nails on a chalkboard. It's so funny how things come full circle. When I was a kid, um, there were certain songs that I, I liked that I would play that my dad just could not deal with. One of them was a song by the Counting Crows called Mr. Jones. Any Counting Crows fans, any Mr. Jones fans? And I, I like the song, but I think I liked it more because it irritated Dad. Uh, and now, believe it or not, my my kids, um, especially our oldest, will listen to certain songs, and I'm like, "Are you? We're hearing that again." It's, it's interesting how it comes full circles. And this is sort of, but this, and for the prophet, this is like nails on a chalkboard. You're getting together and you're singing these songs, but the reality you're embodying has no connection to this worship thing you're doing that really is mostly just about showing off. But instead of that, instead of getting together, what if you let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah in Isaiah 58 says, shout loudly, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. And, and so this is the prophet speaking for God, which they did. Announce to my people their crime and to the house of Jacob their sins. 
They seek me day after day, desiring knowledge of my ways like a nation that acted righteously, justly, right? Because righteousness, even in Hebrew, has the connotation of justice. So not not doctrinal, doctrinal purity, but actual justice being brought to the world. They seek me day after day, desiring knowledge of my ways like a nation that acted righteously, that didn't abandon their God. They ask me for righteous judgments, for just judgments, wanting to be close to God. Why do we fast and you don't see? Why afflict ourselves and you don't notice? Yet on your fast day, you do whatever you want. You oppress all your workers. You quarrel and brawl. And when you fast, you hit each other violently with your fists. You shouldn't fast as you are doing today if you want to make your voice heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? A day of self-affliction? of bending one's head like a reed, of lying down in mourning clothing and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a, a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast that I choose? Releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated and breaking every yoke. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family? Then your light will break out like the dawn and you will be healed quickly. Your righteousness will walk before you. Your justice will walk before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, I'm here, uh, which I would love to have heard Brian Gilliland uh, do, do the I'm here there because that's his signature line. Um, if you saw the videos from a few weeks ago. Man, this prophet's cranked up. The prophet says, is this what you think God's after? A production? You think this is what God's after? You being able to say, gosh, we, we did this. Aren't we righteous? Aren't we holy? And it's interesting that through the prophets, the message keeps being, if you have to choose between worship and justice, choose justice. If you have to choose between a religious production and actually bringing about a more just world, a more equitable world, focus your energy on that. Now, I think you can do both, right? But the danger is becoming a religious institution that focuses on how we do this thing really well when we aren't focused on the actual needs and the actual need for justice around us. All right, this isn't a warm fuzzy, but it is love being enacted in a call for justice. This is why I made a decision that for me as a faith leader, as a person who has a certain responsibility, um, that, that what I say um, has, like, people listen, like in a sermon like this, you're listening to what I say. And so one of the things I remember being taught very early on in my ministry is that, um, that, that it's from the book of James, that teachers, their words are, will be judged more strictly, right? More harshly. So be careful how you use your words. And one of the things I've decided is that as a person, uh, as a faith leader who knows that my words carry um, a weight and significance, um, I can no longer sit back and stay quiet when injustice is present. I, you know, I've been told by folks over the last few years, essentially some version of shut up and preach, right? That politics and religion shouldn't be mixed. The problem is that, that politics, what politic, politics is about, what they're about, is the way we order the world, the way, the way we um, order our shared common life. That's what politics are about. Right? Politics are about how do we take care of the most vulnerable among us? Politics are about how do we make sure that as a country we're being just in our 
laws and the enforcement of those laws? Right? How, how do we make sure as a country that we are stewarding the massive amount of resources that we've been uh, entrusted with well? And so in that sense, um, everything ends up having a political implication because it affects our common life. It affects how the world is ordered. There aren't these religious spheres and then economic spheres and then political spheres. What they understood in the ancient world um, is that, that actually everything is integrated and that it is impossible to disentangle all these different areas from life and compartmentalize them. This belief that religion should focus on telling Bible stories and preparing people for the afterlife to leave this world for another one is a modern invention and a foreign concept for the prophets, including Jesus. And so I've come to this understanding that to be a Christian is to understand that this world is actually our home and the transformation of this world into a more just and generous home for everybody, regardless of whether or not they share our label, regardless of what, like, regardless, our work is to transform this world, to participate in the transformation of this world into a more just and generous place for all human beings. That's our work. Love in public always looks like justice. And the fact that we need justice in our world means that injustice is present. And that fact that there's injustice present means that love isn't being embodied in the world in the way we've been invited to embody it. I love these words from Martin Luther King Jr. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But he or she must take it because conscience tells them it is right. Think about those words. That there are going to be times when we must take positions that will be neither safe nor politic nor popular. But because deep down we know that the world, that there is injustice in the world, and that what love embodied looks like is justice for every human being. Perhaps when we think about embodying, if we think about being this value of love, it looks like love is leads to empathy, to seeing the humanity of someone, to compassion, to caring about their suffering, and then to justice, to putting hands and feet and actual uh, flesh and blood on whatever the need, whatever the, whatever the idea, what, whatever's happening in the world, it's actually beginning to embody it in flesh and blood um, and, and to bring about the transformation of this world.